have to speak here on a lecture on the theme of science and scripture, and I've been trying to stick to the subject, but after a message like tonight and after this choir number and all of this good singing, it's kind of hard not to just go off and, <laughs> and forget I'm not a preacher. <laughs> matter of fact, Brother Wilson, I have been licensed as a Baptist preacher, so I could just take off here. <laughs> But especially when uh, when somebody preaches on the sovereignty of God, this is such a blessed truth, and I, it just means so much to me. And I appreciate that message from Brother Johnson a moment ago. Well, let me give just a testimony, and then I'll get back to the subject again. I, I talked to my son a while ago, my oldest boy. He's a Baptist preacher, Independent Baptist Church down in South Carolina, and had a good time of fellowship with him. And, of course, that, and then the message, I, I got to thinking back about a time when I had uh, uh, some worries about him. Uh, teenagers, you know, you go through this and all, but uh, it seemed like he had more than his share. Before he was born, my wife and I committed him to the Lord. We had the assurance that God was going to use him. And, in fact, his birth, in, in some respects, was actually uh, miraculous. The Lord had to answer prayer on more than one occasion there. And we just felt like the hand of the Lord was on him all, all the time. He was a youngster, but then in high school he began to drift away, and he rebelled and got far away. And the day he graduated from high school, he enlisted in the Army and spent seven long years in the Army, just seemed like wasting his life, and just kept getting worse. And finally, and just, just well, we prayed and trusted in a way, but he couldn't help but seemed like worry about it. And I remember one time when it was just like, it looked like the, uh, it just, almost hopeless. I didn't know what else to say or do, and I, turned, I asked the Lord to give me some kind of word about it from, from Him, and I did what I've never done, or very seldom done, and I don't recommend this as a method of finding God's will or a Bible study or anything, but I didn't know what else to do at the time, and so I shut my eyes and opened the Scripture and put my finger there. <laughs> well, the Lord in His grace <laughs> gave me a message that way, and you know what it was? It was Isaiah 30 where it says, Your strength is to sit still. <laughs> and then it goes on down further to say, in, in returning and rest shall be your, 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 your strength, and in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And so that, that was God's word, and we turned it over to him. And through that experience in the army, why he came back to the Lord, and he's the most straight-laced puritanical preacher you ever saw in your life right now. And the Lord used him to win many people to, to Christ. And he preaches the word in a, in a wonderful way. Well, <laughs> be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And now I'm going to quit preaching and get back to the subject. <laughs> Tonight the theme is science and the second coming of Christ. We've been talking about the other end of the spectrum, the creation. But we're also interested in the consummation of all things and what we might learn from the Scripture and from science about this. I might mention about the messages in the, in the morning for those who are able to come in the, in, at the 8 o'clock time. We're going to be speaking on the theme Christ in the creation and at the 11 o'clock hour on miracles and modern science. But tonight, science on the second coming.
There are many ways, of course, that you could approach this type of subject. We could talk about the decay of the environment and pollution and all like that, or we could talk about where it says in Daniel, the 12th chapter, in the last days, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Knowledge is science, that's what the word means. And we are seeing an explosive increase of science, as you know. You've probably heard the figure that 90% of all the scientists who ever lived are living today. And the information explosion, the science explosion, it's just fantastic. Science is increasing at, an, at explosive rates. And this is one more sign of the imminent coming of the Lord. But rather than this sort of thing, what I'd like to do tonight is to consider what the scriptures say in the light of science concerning the characteristics of the time to come, the new earth, the millennial earth, the tribulation period, and so forth. And to find out something about this, I think we have a clue in Acts 3.21 where the Apostle Peter says that God, by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, has been promising the times of restitution of all things. And in Revelation 25 where the Lord Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. He that saith these words is true and faithful. And so we have the promise that the world as it came from the creative hand of God in the beginning is going to be restored. And what was seemingly lost by the fall and by the curse was not really lost, but just sort of temporarily delayed. And God isn't going to fail in his creation. He's going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new again. The world is going to be at least as good as it was in the beginning. And it's going to be the earth, just like this earth, is going to be just as hard and physical and visible as this one is. In fact, it's going to be this one, made new. And the, the heaven, the atmosphere is going to be the same and so on. Except it's going to be purged of all the effects of sin and disorder and decay and death that have been building into it for all these millennia. All of this is going to be removed, but then it's going to be back like it was in the beginning, at least that, and then on beyond that. But at any rate, to get sort of an idea of how it's going to be, we can look back at how it was in the beginning, and that's the way it's going to be again. Of course, the very first thing we read in Genesis, after God created the heavens and the earth, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moving on the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he called the light day and evening and the morning the first day, and he said, let there be a firmament, or a, yes, a firmament in the midst of the waters to divide the waters above the firmament from those below the firmament. And that was so, and he called the firmament heaven, and that was the second day. And then he said, let the dry land appear, and he separated the waters which were under the firmament into two parts, and there were seas, and the gathering together of the waters he called the seas, and the dry land he called earth, and that was the third day, and so on. Now, of course, he proceeded to finish it in the six days, and finally it was complete, and he said it was all very good, just like he wanted it to be. Now, of course, at this point, he knew, of course, that Adam was, uh, had not yet been tested and had not yet sinned and had not yet been redeemed, and, and so this was still in, in the plan and the mind of God. But apart from this temporary intervention and interruption of sin, and the, uh, the provision of the earth for that, why, this was the way that God intended it to be, and I think it's going to be restored like that again. Now, we do know, as we compare the original earth with the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, that there are certain differences. For example, it, it said there was, initially there was darkness everywhere, and then God divided the light from the darkness so that there's now succession of day and night, and it was that way in the original creation before there was ever any sin. 
But in the new earth, it says there's going to be no night there. It'll be all light then, at least as far as the new Jerusalem is concerned, where the home of the saints will be. It'll be all light. It won't be the sun's light. I think the sun will be out there. It won't be the sun will be won't be destroyed. But it says the city won't have any need of the sun because the land is the light of it. Uh, then in the next place, it says there was. Uh, there was water everywhere, and then God separated the waters into two great reservoirs, and then the one under the firmament he divided, and there was land. Well, so there was still some sea, but in the new earth it says there's going to be no more sea. There'll be water, all right, because it says there's going to be a pure river of water of life coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, going out into all the earth, and there'll be water, but there won't be a sea. So the, the original creation, the hydrologic cycle, as it was initially planned, there was no rain, of course, but it was still having seas and, and uh, mist and rivers and all that. Well, that's, that was somewhat different from what it's going to be. But in general, the, the basic uh, arrangement of the creation is going to be restored. Now, let's, uh, let's look at the significance, especially, of water in the original creation. The Apostle Peter, referring back to this, you know, in 2 Peter 3, he says that, it, that the, by the word of God, the heavens and the earth were of old. This is 2 Peter 3, 5. By the word of God, the heavens and the earth were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So evidently the world was sort of constituted, you might say, in a matrix of water everywhere. And it's significant that we know that all living flesh is, is about 70% water, and the blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood is about 90% water. So water is extremely important in God's economy for life. And it's very significant also that in all of these explorations of space that men have been indulging in the last few years, they've never found any real sign or proof of water anywhere else in all the universe. Certainly in very much, not in liquid form at least, not sufficient to sustain life anywhere. Oh, they think maybe they found a few traces here and there in Venus and, and the moon. Well, not in the moon. That's given up, I guess, but uh, certainly no water reservoirs like we have in this world. This world uniquely was equipped for life, and it was, as I say, constituted in what you might call a matrix of water, just everything sort of sustained in water. Water is involved in practically all of Earth's processes, both biological and geological. Uh, water is just all, it's the universal solvent and so on. Everything is seemingly dependent upon water in the world as God created it. And in the, in, at the beginning, it was covered with water. The Spirit of God moving on, on the water, vibrating, like, a, like a, a wave, a, a fluttering. And this, I think, speaks of the fact that he is imparting energy to it, a, a wave motion to all the various ener uh, phenomena of energy and, and matter and work. And all of this was uh, centralized in, in the water. And then he divided the waters into these two reservoirs, above and below the firmament. That's interesting. What, what does that mean? The waters were above the firmament. Well, now the firmament is uh, it's from the Hebrew word rakia, which means simply expanse or thinness or stretched outness. It's about the same as our word space in our present technical jargon. Space, uh, firmament, and the firmament he called heaven. So all these three terms can be used more or less synonymously. Now, we can speak of space in general as uh, one of the components in our space-mass-time universe, but also we can talk about a particular space, and the same way would, would, uh, we, we can use the term heaven. Heaven can be the heaven of the atmosphere, or the heaven of the stars, or the heaven way out there where God is, or just heaven in general. 
in the same way with firmament. Firmament can be the firmament of the atmosphere, which it says was called heaven. And a little later it says birds fly in that open firmament of heaven, so that would be the atmosphere. But then you also say he placed the sun and the moon and the stars in the firmament. That would be a different space, the, 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 the second heaven, or the second firmament, and so on. And also there's the firmament around God's throne. You remember the vision in Ezekiel, how he, the firmament around the throne. And so uh, the same type of, uh, of word usage there in all three cases. Well, now particularly, though, this firmament where the birds fly, the atmosphere, and the waters above the firmament. What, what is that? There are no, no, no waters up above the atmosphere now. But there evidently were then. And I think that probably these were in the form of water vapor. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, the temperature is high up there, and also because it would have to be vapor to be invisible. And it must have been invisible because you could see the light of the sun and the moon and the stars through it. Water vapor, you know, is invisible. But people think of clouds as being water vapor, but they're not. They're liquid water droplets. A water vapor is completely invisible. And even when you have a perfectly clear sky, there's water vapor up in the sky. And it's a very important part of the atmosphere now, even though there's only a very small amount. If all of the water vapor in the atmosphere on the average were condensed and precipitated to the earth, it would only cover the earth about an inch, inch and a half maybe at the most, that's all. So it doesn't seem like very much water there, but if it were not for that little amount, their life would be impossible on the earth, in two respects at least. One is that the, this water vapor provides a greenhouse effect for the earth. And sun's energy comes in, the radiant energy from the sun is transmitted through this canopy of water vapor, but then it can't get back out again, at least not all of it. Most of it is retained and distributed around the earth so as to kind of warm the uh, atmosphere everywhere. And if it were not for that effect, uh, every night the sun which would come in would be reflected out and it wouldn't be retained and it would get so cold during the night that life would be impossible and during the winter. But this small amount of water vapor provides just enough of a greenhouse effect to keep the temperature more or less the same around the world and from day to night. Another effect it has is to filter out the radiation from space, ultraviolet and cosmic radiation and so on, uh, effectively enough, so again, as to make life possible. If it were not for this filter, there would be so much lethal radiation reaching the Earth's surface that life in the higher form would be destroyed. Well, so this water vapor, which is there now, has a very important bearing on life. But if it were much more extensive at one time, as the Bible implies, there were these waters above the firmament, then these effects would be very greatly augmented. And the greenhouse effect, for example, would be much stronger than it is now. And instead of having uh, sharp differences in temperature from equator to pole and from uh, summer to winter and from land to sea and so forth, like we do now, this uh, greenhouse effect would suffice to provide a, a year-long, worldwide, warm, mild, subtropical climate everywhere. And that was the way the world was, I think, when it was originally created. It was, it was a pleasant, wonderful environment and climate all over the world. Now, furthermore, it would filter out these rays much more effectively than the present canopy does. And this means that the harmful effects of the present radiation reaching the Earth would have been inhibited. And one possibility here, although we can't be completely certain about this, uh, is this. People who have been studying the phenomenon of aging for the last generation or so, there's been quite a bit of study devoted to this, and they have different theories about what causes aging. We know that we all get old, and as we get old, we begin to deteriorate, and our skin sort of wears out, and our organs wear out, and our bones get creaky, and 
Sooner or later, we just sort of collapse and go back to the dust. But we don't know why. We know everybody does that, but nobody knows for sure just why we do that. We call it the second law of thermodynamics, but uh, why it should be that way, scientifically, we don't know. And people are trying to study the phenomenon of aging, and they have different theories, and probably the one which is, uh, at least one of the ones which is most widely accepted, and which seems to have the best amount of supporting data, is the so-called somatic mutation theory of aging, which says this, that mutations take place in the cells of the body. And these can take place either in the body cells, the somatic cells, which are on just all over the body, all cells, and also they can take place in the genetic cells, the germ cells, and then they're called genetic mutations. And the, the germ cell mutations, of course, these are inherited. They can be transmitted to the descendants. Somatic mutations can't. Acquired characteristics we know can't be inherited. But nevertheless, they can affect the individual. Now, it's very significant that mutations are practically always harmful. Almost always. And, and nobody has ever really proved, I don't think, uh, a change in a genetic system which is in the natural environment and is a true mutation, something which wasn't there before at all, which is really good for the individual experiencing it. It's a random change in an ordered system, and by the, by the law of entropy, a random change in an ordered system is going to decrease the order of that system almost certainly. And so the mutation is harmful. Well, as far as genetic mutations are concerned, this means that the species will gradually wear out and may eventually become extinct. As far as the individual is concerned, he experiences a lot more of these somatic mutations because these cells are more accessible to the, inner, to the, to the environment, to the radiation, and therefore these wear out more quickly, and every individual, by the time he's an adult, has experienced a great many of these somatic mutations in his body cells. And every time he does, why, that particular cell is harmed. And gradually these accumulate, until finally they get so bad that... Uh, a particular organ just can't function anymore, or cancer develops, or something else, and eventually uh, he dies. And this, as I say, is the somatic mutation theory of aging. Now, mutations, we know, are caused almost always, at least one of the main causes, is radiations, ultraviolet light, x-rays, so on. And we have a lot of radiation in the environment, and this is what causes these mutations, and many people think this is what causes aging and death. Well, now you see, if, if there was a much more effective filter of these radiations in the early days, aging would take place much more slowly, and consequently people would live much longer. And this is one reason, at least, I think, why people lived to hundreds of years in the days before the flood. Another effect, of course, of this radiation, since the temperature would be the same everywhere, or nearly the same, there would still be some slight seasons, but nearly the same, therefore there would not be possible the great air movements that now take place, the great uh, circulation of the atmosphere, the winds that now exist wouldn't be possible. And consequently, there would be no hydrologic cycle such as we know it. The present hydrologic cycle, you know, sun, the sun's radiation it, uh, evaporates water from the ocean, then the air movements carry it inland. There it uh, condenses and precipitates and falls as rain or snow and goes back uh, over the ground in rivers or in the groundwater and back to the ocean again. But without the air movements, that would be impossible. And consequently, rain, such as we know it, would not have been possible before the flood. In this original hydrologic economy, rain wouldn't be, be possible because of the waters above the firmament. And, of course, that's what the Scripture says in Genesis 2, 5. 
God had not caused it to rain upon the earth in those days. But a mist went up every night from the ground, watered the whole face of the earth. It was a diurnal, a daily, localized sort of a dew situation that watered the ground, plus the rivers that came out of the ground. We read in Genesis 2 about a river system that came out of Eden. Evidently, there was a great artesian spring coming out of fountain somewhere down below. And this was a, enough to become a great river going out of Eden, and then it parted into four distributaries, four rivers, and went around. Probably there were other, other rivers in other parts of the world the same way. So these waters under the firmament seem to have been, at least in part, uh, stored in great subterranean reservoirs, great depths down there, uh, with the fountains at intervals, fountains or springs from the depths, providing uh, the source of water for the rivers and the daily source from these from this uh, sort of ground fog or dew. This was the situation then in the early days. Now that isn't like it isn't like that now. There's no water above the firmament now. And I think that the difference was of course at the time of the flood, when the windows of heaven were open and there were rains were upon the earth forty days and forty nights all over the world, the great sluice ways it says of heaven were open. And the, all the springs of the deep, that is the fountains of the great deep, burst open, and instead of just a controlled flow of water from these springs into these artesian rivers, now all of them just burst open and they gush forth everywhere, and, and as, it, as Peter says, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So the original economy was uh, changed then at that time. And of course, even before that, there was a great change at the time of the curse, when the principle of death and decay was introduced. Uh, right from uh, right at the beginning. Now, with this sort of a, of a background in mind, uh, a hypothesis that I would propose is something like this: that since the original Earth is going to be restored in the new Earth, and since the antediluvian world after the fall and the curse was of a higher order of climatic uh, desirability than the present world. And since the millennial earth yet to come is also going to be a, a, a finer world in which to live than the present world, although there will still be death in the millennium, just like there was in the Andalusian world, the hypothesis is that, uh, that the millennium is analogous to the Andalusian world, and the original earth is analogous to the new world. And the present world is right there in the middle, We're right at the, at the bottom, you might say, of the uh, climatological desirability chart. And that's where we are. But we're, the millennium is coming in which, to some degree at least, the conditions of the antediluvian world are going to be restored. And then the new earth is coming when the conditions of the original earth are going to be restored. Now, with this kind of a hypothesis in mind, look at some of the scriptures that deal with the millennium. Now, you don't need to take time to turn to them because uh, it takes too long and you've been here quite a while and I know the bench and so forth. And so uh, I'll just uh, try to rush through this. Uh, it says, for example, and well, in Isaiah 35, as well as in other places, that the wilderness and and, well, and, a, and a solitary place shall rejoice, and the desert shall blossom like a rose. And furthermore, it says that uh, waters will break out in the desert, in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And the places where it says the desolate place is going to be like the Garden of Eden, we're going to have a situation, in other words, in the millennium, where instead of having vast deserts and ice caps and, and all these areas which are not capable of cultivation and inhabitation, well, the whole world is going to be restored to a, a beautiful, lush vegetation everywhere with the possibility for cultivation all over the world, inhabitation, 
The earth is going to be filled with people, it says in the millennium. In other words, the, the uh, economy, the physical economy in the millennial world is going to be much like it was in the Antediluvian world, where we have all kinds of evidence in the fossils, as well as in these scriptural intimations, that everywhere there was great, there were great stands of vegetation, which are now preserved for us in the coal beds, for example, and great quantities of marine life, which are now preserved for us in the oil reservoirs. And by the way, just in passing, it's interesting to, to note this, that the ratio between the total amount of coal reserves and oil reserves in the world is about 100 to 1, about maybe 10 trillion tons of coal and about one hundredth of that oil. And that's the same ratio, practically, between the biomass of plant life in the present world and, or, and, and animal life in the present world. And even in terms of order of magnitude, the total amount of carbon and hydrogen in the present plant world on a worldwide basis and in the animal world is about the same as the amount of coal and oil. And, well, this is just sort of in passing. I think we, we have a clue, you see, as we study the fossils and the sedimentary rocks, that the, the antediluvian vegetation, which was so extensive and so wonderful, is now preserved for us in these fossil fuels in the coal bed, and the same way with the marine life, the animal life, uh, and, the, and the oil bed. Well, anyway, it's going to be a, a world of extensive vegetation and wonderful climate and temperature and so on. The ice caps are going to have to melt, the desert is going to have to be uh, made uh, water available to it, and so on. Now, another thing that we read in the uh, prophecy of the millennial age, for example, in Isaiah 40, it says that, the, that every valley is going to be exalted, and every mountain and hill are going to be brought low, and the crooked places are going to be made straight, and the rough places are going to be made plain. In other words, the present topography is going to be smoothed out. The mountains, which are now so rugged and inaccessible and forbidding in, most, in many places, are going to be cut down some way, and the, the great depths like in Death Valley and, and the, the great extensive ocean basins and so forth are going to be raised up, and it's going to be like it was in the beginning because we have the clue, again, in the antediluvian world that it was like that. There were only low mountains, and most of the earth was covered with land. There, were just, there was a network of shallow seas here and there, but... Uh, there wasn't near as much water in the oceans of the antediluvian world as there is in the present oceans. The reason we know that is because the present oceans have the waters of the flood in them. After the flood, it says when the waters covered the antediluvian mountains, then, 104th Psalm says this, when the waters stood above the mountain, then the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down into the place God had provided for them. And so there was a great uh, drainage epoch. Great rivers were formed, and we find the remnants of these in the present rivers of the world today. Every river basin in the world today is just a shrunken remnant of what once flowed in that river valley. There's all kinds of evidence of that. Now, before the flood, therefore, the, the, the waters in the ocean were not nearly so extensive. In fact, the waters were in the fountains of the deep and in the waters above the firmament. That's where they were then. Not so much on the earth's surface as now. Well, in order for the deserts and the, and the ocean and the ice cap and so forth to be made available again for, for man, why, well, this is going to have to be restored some way. Uh, we have also the clue about animals, of course. You know, in the, uh, in the prophecy of the millennium, it says that the wolf and the lamb are going to lie down together, and, and the, what is it, the, uh, the lion or something is going to eat straw like the ox, and the little child is going to play with the serpents, and they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, how then is all this going to happen? 
How's God going to bring all this about? Well, of course, he could just speak, and it would it would happen if he wanted if he chose to do it that way. But there are intimations that just as in the in the flood cataclysm, God used a, an acceleration of natural processes, so he's going to do the same thing in bringing the, the millennial world into existence again. He's going to use the laws and the processes which he established himself, but he's going to control them in such a way that he will accomplish his purpose through them, just as he did in the flood. And we get clues about this, I think, in the, in the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled during the period known as the Great Tribulation. But before we're looking at those, let me read here from the 148th Psalm. As you know, the book of Psalms has 150 Psalms, and I think that the last five Psalms, each of them begin and end with the phrase, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord, I think these are, these are to be used in the future when we're all around the throne of the Lamb singing praise to the Lord, and, and here he, the people are just sort of recounting what God has done as they praise him there. And in the 148th Psalm it says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise ye him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise ye him sun and moon, praise ye him stars of light, praise him ye heavens of heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens. There's the waters above the firmament again. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Now note this, in six verse he says, He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. And there are a lot of other references, too, in the Bible that speak of this earth and the moon and the sun and so on as, as lasting forever and ever. Well, the waters above the heavens are not there now, so if they're going to last forever, God's got to put them back again some way. And he made, made the earth that way in the beginning, and it's been set aside for the time being, but he's going to restore it. So somehow they've got to get back up there. Well, now, here I, I'll have to speculate a bit because it's looking into the future, and it's a whole lot easier to interpret historical passages than it is prophetic passages because we don't have the advantage of hindsight there. But uh, at, at least going on the best we can to, to take the prophecies as literally as, as possible, it looks to me like they're, they're saying something like this. For example, in Revelation 11, right in the middle of the book of Revelation, I think right also in the middle of the Great Tribulation period, uh, I assume that most of us here are somewhat familiar with these prophetic passages, and I don't have time to, to, to prove all this. I hope I'm being, uh, being correct on these things. It seems, best I understand, the tribulation period is going to last seven years. This is described in Daniel 9 and in other places in the book of Revelation and other parts of Daniel. It's going to last seven years. And right in the middle, certain things are going to happen after three and a half years. And one of those things is that there are going to be two witnesses, two great witnesses. And evidently, they're going to be witnessing for the first three and a half years. Then they're going to be cut off by the beast who's described then in He's mentioned in Revelation 11 and then described in Revelation 13, and the beast then is going to rule without restraint for three and a half years after that. So I think the witnesses are witnessing for the first three and a half years, and the beast just can't uh, control things like he wants. The beast is the world ruler of that day. But after the witnesses are gone, then he just has full sway. So now it says there in Revelation 11 that, the, that these two witnesses have great power. I think that these men are Enoch and Elijah, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. The reason I say that is because they didn't die. They were caught up to heaven. And here these men have to die. And then they are re resurrected. But anyway, whoever they are, they're going to witness, it says, to all the world. I think television is going to carry their message everywhere. 
and they're going to be sort of in charge of the other witnesses, the 144,000, maybe others who are witnessing around the world, and and their testimony is going to result in the, in the conversion of a great number out of every nation and tribe and people who are going to be saved during that awful day of tribulation. And because of this, of course, the beast is going to try every way he can to stamp this out. He's going to persecute and kill, but he can't get at these two witnesses until the end of, their, of the days of their prophecy, which are three and a half years, 1,203 scored days, three and a half years. But then he says he slays them. But before that, it says that they have power to shut up heaven in the days of their prophecy. The days of their prophecy are three and a half years. They're going to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Now, this reminds us of Elijah, how he prayed and it, that it might not rain, and it rained not by the space of three and a half years in the land of Israel back there in the days of, of Ahab. And he prayed again, and it rained. Well, he was prophesying in the land of Israel, for, and it, it didn't rain for three and a half years there, but here the prophecy applies to the whole world, and there's going to be a period of three and a half years where there's no rain over all the earth during the first half of the Great Tribulation period. No rain anywhere. They shut up the heavens. And furthermore, they, uh, they have power to turn the waters into blood. And we'll talk about water pollution in those days. The streams are going to be made bitter, and the oceans are going to be made bitter, and a lot of the fishes are going to die and so on. And people are going to have to really get busy and get their saline conversion plants into operation or, or something to purify the water to make it possible for them to keep alive. But and it's going to be an awful thing. And it won't rain at all. And then besides that, it talks about in Revelation 7 of, of God sending these angels who have control over the winds. Now, you know, angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who are heirs of salvation. And they have control. They're mighty angels and they're wise angels. And they understand these natural processes. We'll talk about this a little more tomorrow when we talk about miracles. But they, they understand how to control natural processes, and so when they are told to restrain the winds, they know how to control the meteorology in some way, so that there's no, not going to be any wind all during that time either. No rain, no wind, just dead stillness everywhere in the atmosphere. And then a little later, it talks about another angel casting his bowl into the sun, and the sun will scorch men with great heat. And so the nuclear processes in the sun are going to be intensified, and it's going to be hotter and you can, you can see what's going to happen. The sun is just going to be boiling down with great heat, and water is going to be evaporated, boiling out of the oceans. No winds to carry it anywhere else. It just keeps going up. There's no rain, so it just keeps going up. And gradually, the oceans are dried up. The rivers are dried up. A little later, it says the great river Euphrates is dried. And if that river is dried, a lot of others are going to be dry, too. The rivers are going to dry. The oceans are going to uh, fall. The ice caps are going to melt. The great ice caps in the Antarctic and in Green, Greenland are going to melt. Uh, you remember how it's, uh, what God told Job back there in the 38th chapter of Job? He said, Job, have you entered into the treasures of the snow? Do you know the treasures of the hail, which God has reserved against the day of trouble? That's a tribulation. The day of battle and war. And the ice caps are going to melt. And I don't know whether they're going to melt before the oceans start evaporating or not. But Amos says, in connection with this uh, time, he says, God's going to call forth the waters of the sea and pour them out on the land. And you know that if the ice caps were to melt now, in the present world, in the present ocean, they would raise the sea level at least 50 feet, maybe 100 feet, and all of the great cities that are along the coast, and most of the great cities of the world are right along the seashore, would be inundated and would be destroyed. 
I guess it wouldn't affect Clarksville, but it's going to probably hurt San Diego out there, where, except I won't be there then. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the waters are going to drown the sea coast, and then the oceans are going to boil away. Now, gradually, this canopy, therefore, I think, is going to be restored back to the condition before the flood. Now, another thing's going to happen, though, too. In order to get the condition back to the antediluvian uh, economy, you're going to have to cut down the mountains and build up the oceans and so on. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, it's interesting that just in these recent years, people are devoting an awful lot of study to, to oceanography and to submarine geophysics. And we're beginning to get a pretty good idea about the structure of the ocean basins. And the more uh, people study this, the more they're interested in the, in the remarkable uh, physical structure. They, we, we now see the ocean basin in the form of great uh, plates, which are maybe moving with respect to each other. And it seems like maybe at the mid-oceanic ridges, material is coming out from the mantle down below the Earth's crust and spreading out over the seafloor. And then as it approaches the continent, it's thrusting under the, the continental plates. And at these points around the ocean where the, where the plates come together, there's an unstable zone. And all around the rim of the Pacific Ocean and other places seems to be the focus of, of earthquakes. And all these great earthquake zones seem to be associated with this oceanic uh, floor structure. Well, we know a little about earthquakes in California, too. They're worried, you know, that, the, that California may have a great earthquake and just slide off into the ocean. And that isn't so far-fetched. You look at these... Uh, these maps, like National Geographic has published and all, and, and it wouldn't take a whole lot of, of unsettlement of the Earth's crust to, to, to maybe do something like that. The Bible does say earthquakes are going to increase in the last days, and we know that there are these unstable zones all around, uh, sort of a network all around the, around the Earth, and earthquakes are occurring uh, in many places. Well, the Bible indicates that these are going to increase. It talks about in the sixth chapter of Revelation of a coming great series of earthquakes when it says the, the islands are going to be moved. All of these uh, uh, upwelling uh, mounts, sea mounts and so forth, and the islands of the sea, these are all going to be moved out of the places. These are on unstable belts. It speaks in, uh, in, in Isaiah, also in Revelation 6, about... Uh, finally, as these, uh, earth, these earth movements begin to be so severe, and then submarine landslides begin to take place, great turbidity currents are set up, and the lands begin to slough off into the sea, the continental slope begins to drift off into the deeps, and the shelf, and, uh, well, I don't know what all, but the, it finally says it looks like that the whole crust begins to slip over the mantle, and it describes it in the Bible as being people on the earth will think like the, the heavens are departing like a scroll because the earth on which they're, the land on which they're living is, is slipping, moving away. It says in the book of Haggai, there's uh, coming a time, yet once, and it's a little while, saith the Lord, when I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and then the desire of all nations shall come, and the earth will be filled with his glory. It talks about the... And the 16th chapter of Revelation says there's towards the end of the tribulation period, finally such a great earthquake is going to come that it says all the mountains are going to not even be found. The mountains are just going to...
completely disappear, and the islands are going to disappear. Evidently, the, the earth is going to shake so terrifically, and such great landslides are going to be set up, and such great uh, seismic activity, that, uh, that all of the heights are just going to go off into the depths, and the earth is going to be smoothed out. It speaks about in Joel how in that day there's going to be blood and fire and pillars of smoke, evidently great volcanic activity everywhere. And it's just going to be an awful time. But the end of it is going to be that every valley shall be exalted and the mountains shall be cut down and the crooked places are going to be made straight and the rough places plain and the canopy is going to be up there again the lands are going to be smoothed out and the desert's going to be, begin to blossom like a rose and in the wilderness streams are going to break out and the time will be set for the Lord Jesus to come and establish his glorious kingdom here on the earth. Well, there's, there, there are a lot of other things that we had time that we could look at, and maybe you can sort of study this on your own and fill in some of the details. But I think we can begin to see at least the outline of what's going to come and, the, and these physical processes that God has established, he's going to control in such a way that they're going to accomplish his will and to establish the earth in the way he wants. But then that's not the end of it. Oh, there's much more. The millennium only lasts for a thousand years, and we've got all sorts of ages yet to come. <laughs> and, of course, the people going into the millennium, still in the flesh, there won't be many. Isaiah says there's going to be a few men left. There won't be very many people still in the flesh allowed to go into the millennial kingdom. But then the conditions are going to be such that there will be rapid uh, multiplication and propagation, and it won't be long before they fill the earth. And finally it says uh, they'll fill the earth like the sand of the sea in a thousand years and there won't be there, people will still die there'll still be death then but it won't be like now it says in Isaiah 65 that, that, that there won't be any more an infant of days a baby who just lives a few days and then dies it won't happen anymore everybody will get to live at least a hundred years apparently it, it implies there and then the sinner might be cut off and you see people will still be in the natural flesh and they'll still be capable of rebellion in their hearts. They can't rebel openly because the Lord Jesus says going to rule them with a rod of iron. And they won't be, they'll be restrained. But still, you're not saved just by outward obedience, obviously, to the, to the law. It's still a matter of, of heart conversion. And these people will still be, in great numbers, rebellious in heart. And therefore, it says, in order to, as it were, test them again, the devil must be released from his prison for a little season to go out and tempt the nations again, which are in the four quarters of the earth. And strangely enough, he gathers them together like the sand of the sea. And they go up against the camp of the saints, and then fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. And then, then it says that this present earth, even though it has been built back up almost to its pristine, beautiful condition, is going to have to be completely purged of sin and and disease and fossils and all the evidences of death and destruction that have been built into it over the ages. All of this is going to have to be cleaned up so the earth is going to remove out of its place. Isaiah says the earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Peter says the, the day of the Lord will come in which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Now it won't be annihilated but it will be just completely burned up and transformed and the elements will have to be restored back to the condition that God had for the original earth. He's going to make it new again. And then we read about this in, uh, in Revelation where John in his great vision says, I 
saw a new heaven and a, and a new earth. First earth was passed away, and there was no more sea. And then he says, I, John, looked up and saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. Now, what, what is this holy city? Well, it says it's coming down out of heaven, which means it's coming down to this earth. So it's evidently up in heaven before that. I think it's there right now. The Lord Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this is not a state of mind. It's a place. It's a physical place. That's where the Lord is. And that's where those who have died in the Lord are, because it says they've gone to be with the Lord. So they're there, and they're going to come back, of course, at the first at the rapture. The, the bodies are going to be raised and all, and, and, I, and that's where the saints are going to live. And they're going to come back then. I think that'll be their headquarters during the millennium. I'm not sure about this, but I think that, that'll be where we, where we sort of have our headquarters. We'll be ruling over the earth, and we'll, I think, be running out to see galaxies here and there and all that. But... That'll be our headquarters. And then we're going to come back to the earth with the, with the new Jerusalem on the new earth. And then, then it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they'll be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there'll be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that says these things says, Behold, I make all things new. And he that says this, his word is true and faithful, and it's going to happen. And Revelation 22, 3 says, and there will be no more curse, no more sorrow, tears, crying, pain. These are the aspects of the curse. If you go back to Genesis 3, 17, all this is going to be removed. And it's going to be forever. Isaiah 65 says, I create new heavens and a new earth which shall remain before me, saith the Lord. It won't go down like the present one does. It won't be the second law of thermodynamics is going to be repealed, you see, then. It's going to last forever. And let me just mention briefly this New Jerusalem because this kind of fascinates me. It's a it's twelve thousand furlongs every direction, or literally twelve thousand stadia in the in the Greek. And you convert this to miles, it means it's fourteen hundred and twelve miles in every direction. It's a great cube, as high as it is wide and long. It's no, no city is now like, built like that because the, the earth wouldn't support that kind of a city on its present foundations, but. This city has foundations whose builder and maker is God, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to support it all right. And the streets of the city are going to be made of gold, and there are going to be jewels and so forth in the gates. And, of course, we, you don't need to worry about being so high, because in, in our new bodies we'll be able to move vertically as well as horizontally. Uh, and I think we'll be able to move with the speed of thought, not just the speed of light. We can just get there right now when we want to, anywhere. But anyway... Sometimes people say, you know, well, you can't put all the, all the saints in a city that size. There's not enough room. Well, yes, there is. Have you ever tried to calculate this? Well, do uh, you know how many people have lived since Adam? We made a few calculations on the population this morning, and, if, and putting these figures in, working it out, going back to Adam's time, and even allowing for maybe there's some gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, even allowing for that, at the most... Since Adam, there have been about 40 billion people who have lived and died on the earth. That's all. About 40 billion. Well, now, of course, not all of them are saved. Sad to say. But that's, that's the way it is. Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. So most people are not saved. Well, how many are saved? I don't know. But let's just make a guess. Let's say just... Just 
take a figure, say 10% of all the of 40 billion that are going to be saved. Now, probably less than that, but let's say 10%, 4 billion people at the most would have to inhabit the New Jerusalem. And, of course, we're not sure about some of this. It talks about the nations of those who are saved bringing their glory and honor into it, as though there are nations outside of the city, too. But let's just say that all these four billion people are in the city. And then let's say that the Lord who designed it, of course, he wants it to be a beautiful place. I don't think you have to have factories and things like that there, but there probably will be public buildings and parks and streets and all. So let's say that 75% of the city is dedicated to public uses like that. That means only about 25% of the city be available for uh, residential subdivisions and, and like. Well, 25% of the, of the city, 1,400 miles cubed. And then you divide that 25% up among the 4 billion people who might be there. And you know how much room each one has? Turns out that everyone has about, on the average, one-sixth of a cubic mile of property in the New Jerusalem, at least. That's on the average. Of course, I guess some will have more than others, but uh, on the average, one-sixth of a cubic mile. And if you put that in terms of acres, you might understand that a little better. It means that everybody has a big cubicle block with, uh, on every face of that cube, 200 acres, and then everything in between. So, <laughs> so there's plenty of room in the, in the New Jerusalem for, for all who's going to be there. <laughs> Uh, sometimes people wonder, too, what are they going to do during all eternity? How are you going to keep busy? Are you going to get sort of tired just floating around on clouds? Well, <laughs> we're not going to float around on clouds at all. We're going to be busy. The Lord, he says we're, his servants are going to serve him, and he's going to have things for us to do. And he talks about giving some five cities and some ten. Maybe these cities are galaxies. You know there's enough galaxies in the universe so that every one of these four billion might have uh, several galaxies he's in charge of. And I don't know why God created all these things. We, we'll never get to them in our present space travel. You just can't do it. The nearest star is four light years away. You can't get there. But then we'll be able to get there. And I think if, if nothing else, we could spend all eternity just exploring the infinite universe, and we'd never exhaust it. And so the Lord may have purposes for these things that we can't even dream of now. And, of course, I'm going to spend... Uh, I'm going to spend the first few million years, I think, talking to Noah and to... <laughs> And I also want to get to know John the Baptist pretty good. He's one. He's a guy that I really admire. And then also Spurgeon and, and all and all of you folks and all all of us will have plenty of time to get to know each other and to have fellowship and to share our experience and testimony. And then we can go out and explore some galaxies and no telling what all we can do. But the, the best thing, of course, is that we'll be with the Lord. Uh, and this this could happen pretty soon, you know. It says in First Thessalonians four that when the, the Lord Himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we're ever going to be with the Lord. So we'll always be with Him from then on, and that will be the best thing of all. We'll always be in the presence of the Lord. Of course, He's omnipresent in His universe. Well, I don't know what all we'll be doing, but uh, I know that the Lord Jesus shed his blood in order that we might be there, that we might be with him, and we're, we're going to be there just by his grace. We don't deserve it. But the scripture says, God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved. And then it says he's raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in these ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. By grace you're saved through faith. Also says over in the third chapter of Ephesians, after it says, Even now he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Then it says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Well, that's, uh, that's what we're looking forward to. And the Lord could come tonight. I believe he just might come pretty soon. At least I'm, I'm looking for it. And I trust we'll be, as Peter says, uh, diligent to be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, abiding in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him when he comes. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.